Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The scripture reading, the first scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, and may be found on page 954 of your pew Bible. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the table of the rich man. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. And he said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The word of the Lord. Our second lesson comes from the book of Judges. We have undertaken this study of the life of Gideon and the times of Gideon to see what we can learn from his experience in this time before the kings of Israel. There was uh, the tribes, uh, Tom referred to it last week as the tribal amphictyony, very fancy word saying that there wasn't a king in the, uh, in the land. If you look at the last verses of the book of Judges, you will see that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There's no king in the land. So some of the people, many of the people are hoping they can be, have a king just like all the nations. That was not the will of God for them, but he, God consented to let them have their kings, uh, even when he warned them what they would expect when they got them. Last, uh, when we introduced this session two weeks ago, uh, we were looking at the call of Gideon and how Gideon resisted that call. He couldn't believe that God would use him to deliver Israel. As Bob reminded the children, he came from the smallest clan in Israel, the tri tribe of Manasseh. His family was the weakest member of the tribe of Manasseh, and he was the runt of the litter in his own family. 
How in the world was God going to make him a mighty warrior? And yet that's what God called him, a mighty warrior, and said, I will be with you. And so eventually, Gideon is going to become that warrior. We will see that. But we're still in the sixth chapter. If you remember what preceded our reading for today, Gideon had, has already tested the Lord. He's not sure the angel that came and spoke to him was really representing the Lord. And so he puts forth a test for the angel, puts out some meat and some cakes, and uh, the offering is consumed by flames from the angel. And you would have thought that would be enough to convince Gideon. But no. I'm going to pick up now at verse 33 and read through uh, the balance of chapter 6. <clears throat> then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and crossing the Jordan, they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. He sent messages throughout all of Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, In order to see whether you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said, I'm going to lay a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, do not let your anger burn against me. Let me speak one more time. Let me please make trial with the fleece just once more. Let it be dry only on the fleece, and on all around on the ground there shall be dew. And God did that so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, and all of the ground there was filled with dew. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you remember from the introduction, there is a cycle that you see over and over again in the book of Judges and the story of each of the judges. If you can remember five S's, you will know the outline for every story. The people sin. They, become they are subjected to slavery. Their supplication. They cry out to the Lord for help and deliverance. He sends a Savior and saves them. And then there's silence. Usually it says the land had peace for 40 years, 20 years, 60 years, whatever. The next verse will begin and the people sinned against the Lord. So you have that repeated ad nauseum throughout the, the book of Judges. Uh, you might want to even draw a little circle and put five S's on it and write those five words. If you have your own Bible, you don't need to write the pew Bible. But uh, you ought to bring your Bible with you for worship, okay? It's supposed to be a tool in your hand. So any kind of note you can take or... Uh, Anything that helps you understand and interpret it, it is good. Well, in the call of Gideon, we saw something about self-image, our own self-image. Who are we? Who tells us who we are? Does our physical health, our wealth, our connections, our popularity, our profession, who tells us really who we are? It is the one who has created us and who in Jesus Christ has redeemed us. God called Gideon a mighty warrior and when Gideon came in time to believe that, he in fact became a mighty warrior, despite his reservations and his doubts. What we have in today's lesson is a famous passage of Scripture. It's called Gideon's Fleece Test. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century theologian and mathematician. He's the one that's credited with saying that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that can be filled by no other. 
But uh, he kept a journal and a notebook, and every now and then he wrote in the margin of his notebook, Gideon's Fleece. But he never commented. So we long to know what Pascal thought about Gideon's Fleece, how he would interpret that and apply it to theology, maybe even mathematics. Who knows? But this is a famous test that Gideon undertakes. Uh, it's a surprising story in many ways. Um, it's surprising that he had the audacity to test him the first time in the verses that precede this. Then he tests God a second time, the fleece wet, ground wide. And then he has the unmitigated gall to test him a third time when the fleece was dry and all the ground around it was wet. The surprising, the most surprising thing about the story is that God consents to the test. Because usually, God refuses to be tested by man. I want to use this story this morning as a backdrop around which we can think together about the subject of certainty in matters of faith. How can we be certain about any affirmation of faith, about any action that God might be calling us to do, to be a deliverer, to join the church, to forgive someone who's wronged us, to love someone who doesn't deserve it. To give cheerfully. How do we know that this is really so? That this is God's will for us? How do we test those uh, beliefs or those actions? All of us want to be certain before we take an action, don't we? We'd like to know in advance if it's going to be fruitful or successful. Or if it's go we're going to be uh, miserable failures. Or if we're going to look like fools in order to do something. Uh, when there's no guarantee it's going to work out as we had hoped. Um, so, uh, what do we believe about this matter of certainty when it comes uh, to the faith? Um, in theological circles, this is referred to as a verification, theological verification. Can you really verify the truth of some assertion or the truth of some word from God? We believe that uh, if only God would come down and do some miraculous thing in our lives, we would trust God without reservation. Really? Would we? If that were even possible, would that lead to obedience and to trust? There's a branch of philosophy called epistemology. It deals with what does one believe? How do you distinguish false belief from true belief? Uh, and what are you going to do about it? Um, it's my personal conviction that we believe in order to understand. We don't understand in order to believe. Now, this is an ancient debate in theological circles. St. Thomas Aquinas was one who said, no, you have to understand and then you believe. And so you use your rational uh, capacities, your intelligent grasp of what evidence is out there, and then you make a decision as to whether or not you will believe. That's the, uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas. That's typically the uh, Roman Catholic approach. Most Protestants, and especially Presbyterians, have followed the Augustinian approach. And Augustine said, no, you believe in order to understand. You have to choose to trust and have faith. And then you begin to see how things fall together. The evidence begins to make sense. But it's only because you've chosen to believe. See, I'm convinced that human beings by nature... Believe what they choose to believe, what they want to believe. 
And we interpret the evidence in light of what we've decided. You may find that very offensive to hear it, but I, I think life bears that out in so many different ways. Evidence in the religious sphere is subject to so many different interpretations. That way, that's why we have so many people reading the same passage of Scripture, but seeing completely different things in it. If you listen to the news the past couple of days, Attorney General Sessions says something about Romans 13. Cardinal Dolan gets, is interviewed and says the complete opposite. What is Romans 13 really teaching? And how does that apply to our nation and our life as the people of God? So we have different interpretations, but how do you test out what is true? The parable that Steve read to us this morning, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is instructive here, I think. The rich man dies, he goes to Hades. The poor man that sat at his gate, who was never given anything to eat, goes to be with Father Abraham. There's a great chasm between them. And the rich man is suffering in hell and asks for help from Father Abraham. He said, let Lazarus come and just dip his hand in the water and touch my tongue to relieve me of this pain. Know that there's a great chasm that can't happen. We can't get to you. You can't get to us. He says, well, at least let Lazarus go and, and warn my five brothers. I hope he didn't have any sisters because he didn't ask about them. But go warn my five brothers so that they won't come to this dreadful place. And Father Abraham, or Jesus has Father Abraham say in his story, they have Moses and the prophets. If they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets... They're not going to believe even if someone should rise from the dead. Now, what do you think Jesus was thinking about that? I think his own resurrection. I think Jesus understood that the resurrection would not be proof except to those people who are open to believing that God could act in that way. We believe what we choose to believe. Faith is a risk. Now, there's some evidence, I understand, that we can look at. But faith is not the same as proof. We can't prove the existence of God. We might look at the world around us and say it ought to be readily evident to everybody, but that's because we already believe that God is the creator, the maker of all things, you and me included. So we see the evidence in that light. Not everyone sees that evidence. They have questions about it. Even the resurrection of Jesus in the Gospels was interpreted differently. They'd heard the rumor, oh, the disciples went and stole his body, and they just told everyone that he had been raised from the dead. Others said, oh, no, no, he was just pretending. He wasn't really dead. He only seemed to be dead. He was revived. Even the, the apostles said they couldn't believe. When they saw Jesus, they couldn't believe it. People don't come back from the dead. Are our eyes deceiving us? Can we even trust what we see or hear? Frequently. In Jesus' own life, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would come to him and ask him, just perform a miracle, then we'll know you're from God, right? He consistently refuses to do that. Why? Because it wouldn't be proof. It wouldn't prove anything to them if they've already decided he's not from God. So he refuses on those occasions to perform a miracle. And even when he performs a miracle, what happens? They accuse him of being in league with the devil. He's not from God. He has to get that power from somewhere else. He's... He's not from God, really, because they had already made up their minds. He wasn't from God. Faith does not come through proof. Evidence of God and of God's will is available only to those people who choose to believe that that's a possibility. 
It's not the evidence that leads to faith, but it is rather our faith, our trust in God, our trust in His Word that enables us to look at evidence and embrace it or not. <clears throat> Let me illustrate with a crude analogy, I guess. But this about believing in order to understand or understanding in order to believe applies to all relationships, really. Not just our relationship with God. It applies to our relationships with one another. Here's a man who says he loves a woman or a woman who says she loves a man. It could go either way. How would a man prove to a woman that he loves her? Is there any incontrovertible evidence that he could give? My wife and I have been married 50 years as of this past week. And I tell my wife I love her. Does she believe that? If she believes I love her, then when I act in a loving manner, when I do something that's kind or considerate, she says, ah, that's verification. He loves me. And if I don't, on those rare occasions, <laughs> act in that manner or do something that's unthinking or resentful or unhelpful, she'll say, well, that's an aberration. He's just having a bad day. On the other hand, if she doesn't believe I love her and I do something bad, she says, oh, that just confirms what I already believe, right? But if I do something loving or thoughtful, he's up to something. There's something he wants. So you make up your mind what you're going to believe in your relationships, even your relationship with God. Do you believe it's possible that God can love you, that God created you, that God wants to use you in his service? There's only one way you can find out and test it. That's by doing it. We've been cleaning out some, a lot of things, actually. Uh, but I found a crest that someone gave me several years ago. <clears throat> uh, Masseys are a sept of Matheson in Scotland. And so there's a Matheson crest that has a motto on it. And I looked at it and I thought, I wonder what that motto is because it's in Latin. I knew one of the words, spero, that means hope. <clears throat> but I didn't know the other, so I looked it up in the Latin and... What the Matheson Massey motto is, do and hope. I think that's pretty good. That goes along with what I'm saying. You have to act, and then you hope. You leave the results to God. You're not responsible for the consequences. You're only responsible for the faithful action that you take when directed by God to do one thing or another. So we make choices, and we see the evidence, the proof, in light of what we've chosen to believe. Basil Mitchell <clears throat> was a wonderful philosopher of religion at Oxford in England. He just died a few years ago. And he's one of those philosophers who likes to teach by telling and writing stories. We're talking about stories in our Sunday school class at 8 o'clock and the power of stories and how they shape us and how many different disciplines in medicine and philosophy and a lot of different areas are using stories and narratives to make points and teach lessons. And so Basil Mitchell has written a parable that is called The Stranger. Let me read you that parable. In time of war in an occupied country, a member of the resistance meets one night a stranger who deeply impresses him. They spend the night together in conversation. The stranger tells the partisan that he himself is on the side of the resistance and, as a matter of fact, he is in command of it and urges the partisan to have faith in him no matter what happens. The partisan is utterly convinced at this meeting of the stranger's sincerity and consistency, and he undertakes to trust him. 
They never meet in conditions of intimacy again, but sometimes the stranger is seen helping members of the resistance, and the partisan is grateful, and he says to his friends, he's on our side. Sometimes he's seen in the uniform of the police, handing over patriots to the occupying power. On these occasions, his friends murmur against him, but the partisan still says, he's still on our side. He still believes, in spite of appearances, that the stranger did not deceive him. Sometimes he asks the stranger for help, and he receives it, and he's thankful. Sometimes he asks, and he does not receive it, and then he says, the stranger knows best. Sometimes his friends, in exasperation, say, well, what would he have to do for you to admit that you were wrong and that he's not on our side? But the partisan refuses to answer. He will not consent to put the stranger to the test. And sometimes his friends complain, well, if that's what you mean by his being on our side, the sooner he goes over to the other side, the better. The partisan of the parable does not allow anything to count decisively against the proposition that the stranger is on our side. This is because he has committed himself to trust the stranger. But he knows, of course, and he recognizes that the stranger's ambiguous behavior does count against what he believes about him. It is precisely this situation that constitutes the trial of his faith. The trial of his faith. Will you trust? Will you believe in spite of what the evidence may look like on occasion? So let me ask you this. Did the fleece test prove anything to Gideon? Did it? The burning of the cakes and the broth didn't confirm his call to be the deliverer. So he tests God with the fleece being wet, and it was. Was he convinced then? No, he wasn't. He asked for another test. The next day the fleece was dry, the ground was wet. Was Gideon convinced then? We're not told in Scripture that he was. What we're told is he got up and did what he was told to do. But it may have been he didn't have the gumption or the gall to ask for a fourth or fifth test. He wanted to get out of this assignment, no question about it. Uh, but God was not going to let him do that. Um, the only thing we can do to know for sure is to act on it. God says it's uh, better to give than to receive. It's better to forgive than to hold a grudge. It's better to love your neighbor even though your neighbor doesn't deserve your love. All kinds of things God tells us that don't make sense to us until we try them out. And we can discover for ourselves. Is God misleading us or is God to be trusted? Like Gideon, you and I are tempted to believe on occasion that all God would have to do is come down with a miracle or two. It doesn't have to be a big miracle. He doesn't have to turn the uh, Ashley or the Cooper River to blood. He could just turn this glass of water shade of pink. You know, that'd work. Then I'd take him seriously. Would I really? Or would I need more convincing to actually act? You want me to forgive that person, Lord? Here, I'm going to flip a coin. Heads, I forgive him. Tails, I don't. Heads. Let's do two out of three, Lord. Then it'll be three out of five. What's going to convince you that that's the right thing? To forgive that person and see what happens. Can God be trusted with his word? This seems foolishness to people outside the church. To many people inside the church as well, it seems foolish. 
And admittedly, it's foolish. It's the folly of the gospel. Doesn't make sense to a lot of people. They want proof. They want to understand. And only if they understand, then they will maybe venture out to believe. That's not the way it works. Faith is a risk. You have to step out. Like Peter stepped out on the water. Like David stepped into the valley to battle the giant. Not knowing ahead of time what the results are going to be. But only when you step out will you discover what they are. And only if you choose to believe will you discover your faith confirmed as you live out your discipleship. Let me close with the words of Paul that were written to the Corinthians that almost serve as a summary of today's message. From 1 Corinthians 1, For God in His wisdom made it impossible for people to know Him by means of their own wisdom. Instead, by means of the so-called foolish message we preach, God decided to save those who believe. Jews want miracles for proof and Greeks look for wisdom. As for us, we proclaim the crucified Christ, a message that is offensive to Jews and nonsense to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, it is the message of Christ who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For what seems to, God, to be God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And what seems to be God's weak, weakness is stronger than human strength. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.